Hey everyone, this is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church and this is our weekly podcast. Hope it encourages you. Hope it makes you want to be closer to Jesus and more like him. Hope you enjoy this sermon. And if you want to know more about us, find us online at woodburnbaptist.org. Open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Just go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 1, the front of the book. And I'll be ready in just a moment. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor here at Woodburn, starting a new message series entitled The Children of Israel. Uh, In 27 years of preaching, I've never done a series like this. I've never just stopped and uh, talked about what it means in Scripture when Israel is called God's chosen people. Never really talked about that with you. We've never really talked about how the Old and New Testament hang together, how Jesus is the Savior uh, from the foundation of the earth. Uh, And of course, now in present times with Israel facing such an incredible dilemma and persecution in the Middle East, it seems even more important for us to uh, discuss some of these questions together. So the next several weeks, I just want us to talk about the children of Israel, what that means, past, present, and future. We'll start today with the beginning. Uh, You ever just had to clean up a gigantic mess? Um, when I was a kid, I don't know, I was probably, I don't know, 9, 10, 11. I don't really remember how old I was. My sister's about three years older than me, so she was 12, 13, 14, somewhere in there. Uh, it was an ordinary day, Saturday, and uh, uh, my dad and mother and I were outside uh, on the porch, and my sister was in the kitchen uh, putting dishes in the dishwasher. Such a good girl. Um, and so, uh, as it was... Uh, company came. A car just pulled up in the driveway. And so mom and dad said, hey, come on inside. Let's visit a while. So we were just about to walk in the door. But my sister opened the door, stuck her head out and said, hey, mama, why don't you take them around the house and show them all your flowers? That's weird. But we did it. So we just stopped and we walked all the way around the house and mom showed everybody her flowers and we talked about the bushes and everything else and came around the house. We go right back to the porch, about to come up the steps and come in the door. My sister sticks her head out again and says, hey, daddy, why don't you take them up to the barn and show them all the puppies? Uh, We had a dog that just had puppies up in the barn. So, so we did that too. It was weird, but we did that. We walked our company up, showed them the barn and the puppies, came back down. This time we got in the door before my sister could intercept us and stop us. And what we found was my sister in the kitchen standing waist deep in soap suds. Y'all ever put liquid dishwashing detergent in the dishwasher? Don't. Uh, not kidding. Not kidding. Our dishwasher was just belching out these suds, and it looked like it looked like a TV. Show. It looked like something off of you know the Brady Bunch or That's So Raven. I mean, my sister, our kitchen is flooded with suds. It's like up to here, and it's still coming. It's just pumping them out. So it was funny at first, and then you realize this is terrible. We got to clean this up. I mean, how do you even start? Like somebody's got to dive through the suds just to get to the dishwasher to cut the thing off. I mean, it's still making suds. Where do you even begin to clean up a mess like that? Which, which brings me to the book of Genesis. I want us to consider uh, the mess, the epic mess that God had to clean up. Uh, and we start in the book of Genesis. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole book of Genesis to you, but I want you to turn some pages with me, can you? So Genesis chapter one and two, the beginning of everything, what happens in Genesis one and two? 
Yeah, that's creation. Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter two is creation. God creates a man whose name is Adam and his wife whose name is Eve. He puts them in the garden and there they will work the garden. They will glorify God. They will walk uh, and enjoy God's friendship in the cool of the day. It's a beautiful start. God looked at everything that he had made and he said, oh, it is very good. God saw it all and saw that it was good. Until chapter three. In chapter three, what happens? Yeah, Adam and Eve sin. And so sin comes into the world because we human beings, that's what we do. And so Adam and Eve sin, chapter three are the consequences of that sin. God has to banish Adam and Eve from the garden because were they to stay in the garden, they would have eaten from the tree of life and lived forever in that miserable state of sin and separation. So God, as a son of grace, removes them from the garden. There they begin to fulfill their mandate to fill the earth, and so they're having children. They have two sons in chapter four. Their names are Cain and Abel, but the stain and uh, sickness of sin has spread so far that in chapter four, Cain murders his brother Abel, and so the story continues. Chapter five, chapter six, uh, the family of Adam and Eve continues to multiply and grow, but the spread and stain of sin continues as well. By the time you get to Genesis chapter six, the earth itself, the people of the world are so wicked. The scripture says all they do is stand around all day thinking of wicked stuff. I mean, their minds are consumed with wickedness. And so God realizes that he's going to have to destroy sin and doing that, destroy the people. So the flood comes, but the scripture says one man, Noah, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so Noah and his family are brought into the ark and there they are uh, rescued, preserved throughout the flood. Uh, the flood waters recede. In, in chapter eight, God uh, begins again with Noah and his family in chapter nine. Promises never to destroy the world again by water, hangs his bow in the sky. And so now we have a new start with Noah. It doesn't take long though. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 11, the world once more is filled with wicked people. And in chapter 11, they are completely united in rebellion against God. They're going to build a tower, go up and bring God down. I mean, that's their plan. God will have nothing to do with that. So this time he doesn't destroy the earth. Instead, he scatters the people and confuses their language. That's Genesis chapter 11. And then chapter 12. Chapter 11, again, we realize this epic mess that sin has created in its ruin of God's good creation. And we recognize that God's going to have to clean this mess up. Where will he start? You got to start somewhere, right? Where do you start? As it turns out, chapter 12, sort of out of nowhere, there is one man, Abram. His name is Abram. And this is the beginning of God's salvation history. It starts with one man, Abram. Um, turn over to Genesis chapter 15. I want to pick up 10 years after that first conversation that we find in chapter 12. Chapter 15, uh, this is uh, God's promise to Abraham. Uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? 
Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. The Lord said to him, no, (laughs) your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. Verse six, and Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. My wife, Casey, and I, we only have one son. Uh, He's a blessing, we love him, but I've only had one son. And so I really don't, I can't even imagine what it is for those of you who have more than one kid. Some of you have a lot of kids. Uh, This morning on Facebook, some friends of ours had their ninth kid. Nine kids. Wow. (laughs) That's a lot. Um, I can't imagine. I I, I can't. And I guess my question is the question that y'all get asked, uh, and you don't like the question because it seems so absurd, but people will ask you, do you love them all the same? Right? Uh, Do you have a favorite? You know, and, and what do parents say? Oh, no, no, no favorites. I love them all the same. Do you though? Because <laughs> I've, I've met your kids and I've got a favorite. I mean, you, I mean I, you, you know what I mean? Like your kids are not all equally easy to love. I mean, I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm, you know what I'm saying? It's just, I know your kids and I have a favorite. You telling me you don't have a favorite? Uh, there's a comedian named Dustin Nickerson. He says the way you can tell who you're, I mean, no parent says they have a favorite, but Dustin says you probably have one kid that you treat with favoritism. Not your favorite, but he says the way you can tell is when your phone rings and your lock screen comes up, which kid is on your lock screen? Dustin Nickerson says that that's the way you tell that the kid that you put on your lock screen, that's probably, it's not your favorite, but that's the kid you treat with favoritism. Something special about that one, you know? That's the face you want to greet, you know, when, you, when your phone rings. There's something different about that one. No, Pastor Tim, I love them all the same. We don't have any favorites. Um, okay. Um, what about God? God who is the maker of heaven and earth, and you could say the maker of every man, woman, boy, and girl that's ever lived. Um, Does he have favorites? I ask the question because throughout our lives, if you've grown up in church, you've always heard the nation of Israel referred to as God's chosen people. What does it mean to call one nation out of all the nations chosen? Are we saying that God loves Israel more? Does God have a favorite nation in that nation? Does God have a favorite race? And that's the race of the Jews. I mean, are we saying that? Because I'm not sure we understand what it means to say that they're God's chosen people. That's why I'm taking you back to Abraham. To understand what it means to call Israel God's chosen people, you got to go all the way back to one man, and that man is Abraham. And according to the scriptures, God has this epic mess to clean up. And God wades into the epic mess that creation had become, and he starts to clean up with one man, Abram, Abraham, one. So 
In some ways, I probably just made the question even more complicated because I'm saying if he doesn't have a favorite nation, if Israel isn't God's favorite nation, then what about this one man? I mean, God looks over the whole earth and picks one man to, to, to make this amazing covenant, this amazing promise. He invites them into friendship, just one. It's a world of people, men, women, boys, and girls, and God chooses one. Why Abraham? We know that God doesn't have favorites. It's one of the principles of God's eternal, unconditional love for all of us. He, he loves us all with this eternal, infinite love. There's nothing any one of us could do to make him love us more. And there's nothing we could do to make him love us less. God's love for every single one of us is infinite. And the scripture says that God doesn't have favorites. His justice, his kindness is just poured out like rain on everybody. No favorites. He's not a respecter of persons, the scripture says. The scripture says that God doesn't look at people the way people look at people. We tend to look on the outside. We make judgments based on a lot of external things, but God always looks on the heart. That's what scripture says. So if God's got to start somewhere, and he does, he starts with one man, and the man is Abraham. And if God chooses Abraham out of all of the people on the planet, that tells me, there must be something about his heart. There must be something about his heart. I would say it this way. Abraham was chosen because he had a heart that responded to God. He was chosen because of his faith. He has this heart that responds to God. As I said, I mean, you get the whole epic mess of creation all the way up to Genesis chapter 11. And all of a sudden in chapter 12, I mean, it's different. It, the story shifts. And now we're focused on one man and his name is Abraham. And God just starts this conversation. We don't get an introduction. We don't know anything about Abraham. We just, all of a sudden God chooses and begins to speak to Abraham. And what does God say to Abraham? Oh, you cute. You're, you're, I'm going to choose you. You're so cute. You're, you're my favorite. You know, no, he's not like your grandma. God looks down and he, and he chooses Abraham. And what's the first words God says to Abraham? What's he say? Leave. Leave your country, your relatives, your father's family. Go to the land I will show you. I mean, that's what it means when God chooses Abraham. God chooses Abraham because God has a job. God has a function in his plan for Abraham. And this chosenness has to do with, with this job that he has for him, that this particular role he's going to play. And it involves leaving everything. And this is what God says to Abraham. I, I want you to leave everything you've ever known. You're going to leave your family. You're going to leave your hometown. You're going to leave your home country. And I will tell you where you're going on the way. He doesn't know anything. Abraham has no idea where he's going. He's just going to follow God. And God's going to let him know he's there when he gets there. He don't know if it's going to be hot or cold there. He doesn't even know what to pack. It could be sunny. It could be cold. No idea. All he knows is God says, I want you to leave. Go, and I'll show you where along the way. No map. No GPS. No final address. No destination at all. Just leave. Follow me. And the scripture says... Abram did. 
When God just speaks to him and says, I want you to leave everything, Abram is the kind of guy that hears that and then obeys it with his feet. He's got feet that'll move when God says, I want you to move. You see, I say it's something about his heart. He has his heart that responds to God. If there's anything at all that makes God choose this one man, I would say it's this. He's got a heart that'll respond to God. Now, I find that thought really kind of staggering. Just the, the very notion that there might be one heart in all of creation, in all the people, in all the places on a whole planet, one heart, one man who will respond to God. Now, I, I don't know where your brain goes when you hear that, but I'll tell you where my brain goes. For me, honestly, if there is only going to be one heart that responds to God, I want that to be my heart. I'm not saying I'm better. I'm not saying I'm trying to, trying to you know, get, get ahead of anybody. I'm just saying I, if God's going to choose and use one person, I want to be that person. Don't you? I mean, wouldn't you say the same thing? If there's only one heart on earth that beats for God, don't you want that to be your heart? Because I do. When I look at Abraham and just imagine that thought that there's only one heart that will respond to God, only one man who will go when God says go. Well, I want to be that man. I mean, don't you? If there's going to be one family that God's going to bless and use for his kingdom, let it be my family. I mean, isn't that your prayer too? Don't you want it to be your family? I mean, if, if there's one church in all the world that God could use to, to further his kingdom, don't you want that to be our church? There's only one heart on earth that beats for God. Let it be your heart. Let it be your heart. So uh, God says in chapter 12, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. <laughs> um, at this time, I, I don't remember exactly, I think Abraham is something like 85 He's 85 years old. He and his wife, Sarah, have been married forever and they've never had children. This is long before family planning and long before fertility doctors. All we know is in a whole life of being husband and wife, they've never ever had children. They're not fertile. And now he's 85 and God says, I'm gonna make of you. He doesn't just say, I'm gonna give you children. At this point, probably they've given up even hoping. I'm sure, it, I'm sure there was a time when Abraham and Sarah probably turned the extra bedroom into a nursery just hoping for a baby. But that baby never came. And so finally Abraham turned that room into his office. You know, They've given up. He's, he's 85. Sarah has completely lost that loving feeling. You know what I mean? Her uterus is dry as dust. They're pushing 90. And God says, I'm going to make you, he doesn't just say I'm going to give you a baby. He doesn't just say I'm going to give you a big family. He says, I'm going to make of you a nation. All right, that, that's crazy, y'all. I mean, we got people pushing 90 in our congregation. I'm not going to single any of you out. But, you know, can you just imagine if one of those 90-year-old couples, like in the announcement video one Sunday, hey, you know, next Sunday we're going to have a, a baby shower. For LP and Nancy McElroy. I mean, you know, can you just imagine, can you, like, you know, 
I must have heard that wrong. They, they did not just say, you know, LP and Nancy. You know what I mean? Like, like, LP's in his 90s. I love him so much. Uh, can you imagine? <laughs> I can imagine. And I would so play in that shower. I would bake the cake. I would bake that cake. Um, ten years later. Ten years later is chapter 15. Ten years, God made this extravagant promise to Abraham, and Abraham left everything for the sake of that promise. But ten years later, God comes back and says, oh, I'm going to make you great. And Abraham, who has completely responded to God, just simply says, Lord, um, we got a problem here. You made this promise, and you said you're going to bless me, but I still don't have a son. You know, you promised... And, and we're still, and, and now they're pushing a hundred. Lord, I don't even have a son. At this point, you can bless me all you want, but, but when we're dead and gone, they're just going to have the biggest yard sale in Warren County, and then all my stuff just scattered. My servant will probably inherit most of it. Is that your plan? Because that doesn't sound like a real plan. God said, yeah, that's not the plan. Step outside, Abraham. He takes him outside and he says, look up in the sky. And he looks up in the sky and he says, now, count the stars if you can. <laughs> That's how many children you're going to have. And verse 6 says, Abram, believe the Lord. After a hundred years of infertility, 10 years after God first said, hey, I'm going to give you a baby. I mean, 10 years after that, God says, look up at the stars. That's how many children you're going to have. And Abraham believed the Lord. And the scripture says, the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Now, that verse 6 right there is probably one of the most important verses in the Old and the New Testament. You need to know that. Verse 6. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 is very important. In the book of Romans, when Paul wants to explain how salvation works, he's going to point you back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. This right here. That Abraham believed God and that the Lord counted him righteous because of his faith. Understand, because of Abraham's faith, he is declared righteous and God establishes his plan of salvation. A right relationship with God comes by grace through faith. I'm saying Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, God reveals his plan of salvation. Right here. This is how he's going to save people. He's going to bring people into a right relationship. That's what righteousness means. God counted him as righteous. That means that sin had severed the relationship with God. That relationship is broken. But that God himself, by his grace, just credits credits Abraham with this mercy that he doesn't deserve and just puts him in a right relationship completely from God's side. Abraham can't do nothing to righteous himself, but God does it all because Abraham has a heart that will respond in faith. It is by grace that you are saved through faith. And right here is where you first see that. Genesis chapter 15, verse six, with a man named Abraham who just believed God. 
Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. James chapter two, verse 23 says, and so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and he was called the friend of God. This is salvation. It's just to be invited into this friendship with God, this deep intimacy with God. In the beginning of the book of Genesis, Adam, it says, enjoyed this friendship with God. He would walk with God and enjoy God's presence in the cool of the day, but sin destroyed that relationship. But because of God's grace, he now just invites Abraham into this friendship and he's called the friend of God. So see, understand, this is God's plan of salvation at work. This is God stepping into the epic mess of creation to repair it all, to redeem it all. And he's got to start somewhere, and he starts with one man. His name is Abraham. And this is God's plan of salvation. God has one saving purpose, to save the world through Jesus. Understand, that's God's purpose from the beginning. It's not an afterthought. The way a lot of us read the Old Testament, the way a lot of us probably even think is that God you know, was working with Abraham and then Israel because as you know, the children that Abraham eventually has, his children and his children's children and the children's children's children, they become a great nation and that is the nation of Israel. Abraham is the father of Israel. This is where the nation comes from. So often the way we read this story, you know, God is, is trying to bless Israel, and so he gives them the Ten Commandments, and, and then it turns out people couldn't keep the Ten Commandments, and so then God had to do something else. And so then God sent Jesus like a plan B. You know what I mean? It's like the whole Old Testament didn't really work out like God had hoped, so God starts over with a new plan, and that plan is Jesus, and that one sticks. Okay, No. No, that's not how it works. There never was a plan B. Plan A from the start was to save the world through Jesus. I'm telling you, that was the plan from the very beginning. First Peter chapter one, verses 18 to 20 say this. God paid a ransom to save you. It was the precious blood of Christ. God chose him as your ransom before the world began. Before the world began. I mean, before God ever stepped out and said, let there be. I mean, before the big bang, you know? I mean, before God ever stepped out and created light, already God had intended that Jesus would be the ransom for the sins of the world. It wasn't an afterthought. This was God's plan, God's intention from the beginning. God's not surprised when people sin. God knows how we are. God made us. God isn't surprised or taken off guard by any of this. It's his plan from the beginning to save the world through Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. It points to Jesus. The plan is always to save the world through Jesus' sacrifice, through his death, through his resurrection. That was the plan from the start. God chose him as your ransom before the world began, but now in these last days, he's been revealed for your sake. So in other words, we didn't always understand what God was doing. The whole plan of salvation wasn't known up front. Abraham doesn't know the gospel of Jesus yet, 
but he's still saved by that same grace. His sins are still ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. That was God's plan from the start. Abraham is a character in the story of Jesus. The people of Israel, they're characters in the story of Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. Everything is leading to Christ. Everything finds its fulfillment in Jesus. You understand that? You with me? Now, in these last days, he's been revealed for your sake. We understand that now. So uh, some of you probably already thinking, you're, you're, you're way ahead of me. You're like, okay, you just made it sound like Abraham became a Christian. <laughs> like he got saved and joined First Baptist Church somewhere, you know, in Ur or wherever. No, no, I'm not saying it like that. I am saying, though, that in the Old Testament, those who put their faith and are righteous by faith understand they're looking forward, looking forward to the fulfillment of those promises that God made. They look forward. In many ways, we look backward, but it's still the same faith. You understand? They look forward to the coming of the Messiah. They look forward to everything that God would do through his Messiah. Jesus is that Messiah. We look back upon Jesus now, but it's the same faith. God's plan was always to save us by faith through Jesus. And so understand, it was never about the law. God gives Israel the law. We'll talk about this more in the weeks to come. But understand, the law was never given as a plan of salvation. God was never trying to save people by giving them rules. Notice that Abraham is completely righteous right here. But God doesn't give him a, a tablet of rules to follow. God just saves him because of his faith. Th that's how it works. So understand now what I'm trying to say. It's this eternal plan of salvation from the very beginning. From all eternity, it's God's plan. It was always about Jesus. The Old Testament is always making a straight line to Jesus. And so the story of Abraham and with him, the story of Israel. It's about Jesus. It's always pointing to Jesus, always leading to Jesus. So what does it mean to call Israel God's chosen people? A chosen nation, what does that mean? Does that mean that they're his favorite? No. Does it mean he loves them more? No. He loves us all with an everlasting love. It's not about favoritism. It's about function. God chose the nation of Israel to play a central role, to play a function in the eternal plan of salvation. God's going to use them. And through the story of Israel, God is going to bring about his plan to save the world through Jesus. You see that? So God's choosing them isn't a sign of favoritism, it's function. He's gonna use them. They have a job. They have a role to play. And so you watch the story of Israel unfold and you're watching God's plan of salvation unfold in real time. He chooses them to use them. So if you ever wonder what it means to be chosen, what it means to be the chosen people of Israel, then you go back to Abraham, you know. He was the first, we would say. God made a promise to him, it's an impossible kind of promise, but Abraham chose to believe him, put his faith in him, and for that, God invited him into an eternal friendship. Salvation is personal. God doesn't save us by race or by group or even by church, you know. 
He saves one person at a time. The gospel always comes to one person at a time. The gospel came to you on its way to somebody else. God saves people one person at a time. So when God steps into creation to clean up this epic mess of sin, he obviously starts with one person. His name was Abraham. Abraham had a heart that would listen and obey God. And for that, he was invited into this friendship. In other words, what I'm saying is, if you understand, the story of Abraham, the story of Israel, that's your story. And that same God who looked down and saw Abraham's heart, I'm telling you about a God who knows your heart. He knows everything good about you. He knows everything bad about you. He knows you better than any person could know you and loves you more than any person could love you. There's nothing you could do to make God love you more. There's nothing you could do to make God love you less. He loves you. But you have a heart that's stained and spread with sin. That sin separates you. Yet even with that, God invites you into this friendship with him. Jesus is the one, the ransom paid, the one who removes your sin. It's always God's plan. So that same friendship that was offered to Abraham, offered to the children of Israel, is offered to you. It's personal. So when God speaks, when God looks into your heart, when God offers you this opportunity for relationship with him, you accept that. You go with him. You follow him wherever he leads. This is what it means to belong to God. This is what chosenness looks like. Do you understand? Because God, who chose Abraham and chose the people of Israel, he's chosen you too. So believe and come to him. Pray with me.